Ready to revolutionize your higher ed marketing game? Yes! Well, then don't miss out on Element 451's Engage Summit, June 27 and 28. Explore the cutting-edge world of education and AI technology and unleash your creativity like never before. Register today at engage.element451.com and use promo code EDUP50 for $50 off. The Global Gathering for Educators and Institutions is here. Anthology Together is where inspiration, connection, networking, and ed tech insight and innovation intersect into the premier event destination for the global education community. Registration is open. Go to anthologytogether.com. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to add up on the EdUp Experience podcast, where we make education your business, Dr. Joe Salustio, back with you here on another episode. Um, and I'm happy to say that we have a, a first-time guest co-host and a first-time guest. We're putting together amazing people to create amazing conversations. You know, Elvin and I, of course, Elvin Freites, for those of you who don't know, he is the co-founder of the podcast. And we said, are we a crowdsourced podcast? Like, cause we have people come back, they're a guest and then they come back and co-host and then they go, Hey, I want to interview so-and-so. Can I host while I interview that person? And we go, sure. Yeah. Then we have these spin-off brands of EdUp. I think we're crowdsourced and that's what makes it so much fun here at Up is the fact that we can have these conversations, make people feel comfortable to say what is needed to be said about higher education today uh, and do it in such a way that we do get to have a little bit of fun along the way because if we can't have fun with what we do then we surely can't serve students uh, because you have to be passionate and it has to be fun or else uh, you you fail and we don't like to fail we like to change lives here um, one way you can change your life and i promise uh, do you, if you like that transition you'd pick up a copy of commencement the beginning of a new era in higher education do you see how nicely i made that transition um, it's a book i co-wrote with kate colbert uh commencement the beginning of a new era in higher education it took our first 125 presidents including my guest co-host today and took all of the themes, all of what they think about the future of higher ed and put it all into one big book um, that I think you will enjoy. And uh, we appreciate you. And I thank people every single time on this episode for the thousands that we have sold. It's been incredible. But I'm going to bring in my guest co-host because I've been waiting to uh, co-host with her. Like I asked her a couple times and she's like, ah, I don't know. I don't like you that much, Joe. And let me think about it. And it's like, oh, please. And then I begged. And then here she is. Let me bring her in now. But let me, her, she's got so many titles. I got to get those out. She is the principal consultant at Arshag Consulting. She's the interim CEO of Business Higher Education Forum. And she is the former president of San Jose State University. She's Dr. Mary Papazian. Mary, what's up? How you, how you doing, Joe? No, it's, um, I'm really happy and thrilled to be here with you. And let me just put in a shameless plug for commencement. It's a really important, it's a really important book, uh, not because Joe and Kate wrote it, but because it really, I think, raises critical issues that need to be talked about as we think about the next phase in higher ed and delivering on its mission. So kudos to you, Kate, and the entire the entire commencement team. We, we appreciate you, Mary. Thank you for saying that. And I didn't even pay you to say that, which is amazing, <laughs> uh, double amazing. And, and by the way, you never said you didn't like me. I was just joking. Uh, we, <laughs> we have great conversation. And um, what, what I'm most interested in what you're doing now is you're just really at the forefront of AI. You're having a lot of conversations about artificial intelligence out there. It's changing, isn't it? It's crazy what is going on right now. 
Well, and it's going to change how we think about what we do and and really how we how we think about the kinds of academic programs we want to develop, how we think about the importance of a diverse student body, for example, because their experiences will change the, the landscape. Um, uh, AI has to be built on a lot more diversity, a lot more input than what it traditionally has been. And so I think, and I'm really eager to hear what our guest today um, has to say about how it's influencing some of the work they're doing, um, but it's a new world. And, and I uh, just encourage uh, my, my colleagues to embrace it in the spirit it is because technology as we know, never goes backwards. I'm sitting here in Silicon Valley. I can tell you that. We all can give examples of that. And so we need to get our arms around it and we need to drive it as much as possible so that we can use it for good uh, and not just let it take over our lives. Well said. Technology never goes backwards. And the reason why we continually need to move forward is because it is all about students for us. And access and success. Do you hear me putting this together? Ladies and gentlemen, my guest today, he's laughing already, which means I'm doing a pretty good job, I think. Now I lost the whole intro. He is Samir Gadkari. He is the president and CEO at the Institute for College Access and Success. I think I hit it. What's going on, Samir? Uh, thanks for having me, Joe. And great job with uh, tying it all together in the intro. It's my 630th time doing it, so I better get it right every <laughs> once in a while. Um, Samir, uh, we always like to level set for our audience and assume that there is somebody that is experiencing the, the Institute for College Access and Success for the first time. Give us the once over. What do you do and how do you do it? Sure. Uh, so I'm the president of the Institute for College Access and Success, or TICUS, as we're popularly known. Uh, we work on improving college affordability, uh, protecting students and taxpayers from fraud, waste, and abuse, uh, and in restoring racial and economic equity to the higher education system. And we do that by working with federal policymakers in DC uh, on the changes that they can make, as well as with state policymakers in California and Michigan in particular, but uh, state policymakers across the country on how they, they too can restore the promise of higher education, make it a, a more fair and equitable system and affordable system. And uh, uh, we also work on addressing the harms of student debt uh, along the way. Fantastic. So higher ed is not fair and equitable? I think we have a lot of work to do. Mm. Tell us about that. Like what, what makes, you know, what are those areas that need attention right now for higher ed, right? We know affordability and I think, most people get the affordability conversation, yet college remains out of reach for many, many, many students, right? There is a big gap. What other areas, because I want to do come back around and talk about affordability later, but what are the other areas that, that need to be addressed for fairness and equity in higher ed? Well, it, we, um, it's, it's almost, uh, well, I'll, I'll tell, I know we're coming back to affordability. I do want to say a bunch about it, but I think that that is certainly partly at the root of some of the issues that we see in higher education. It simply remains the case that students need to borrow too much. And over the past couple of decades, we've transferred enormous risk onto students and families in the form of loans and debt if they're to enroll. And, but going beyond that, uh, we see a system in which uh, we don't give the same amount, the same level of resources, support, uh, instruction to every student. And unfortunately, uh, we see 
pretty significant divides between, say, the uh, educational supports that a student would get in a community college or an open access university versus what they would get at a, at a wealthier private university. And so we see kind of big divides in terms of the underlying instruction and how much money we can spend on that. How much can we spend on student supports and advising? How much can we spend on um, tutoring? How much can we spend on emergency grants um, and financial aid? And so that's you know certainly another locus of issues is around completion. And then uh, I think that it's important to note that unfortunately we've seen hundreds of thousands of students uh, lied to, deceived in their uh, in the higher education world. Particularly, uh, we've seen this from some for-profit institutions, but we see it in uh, in various places where students have been misled, uh, and so that's led to a multi-year effort to discharge the loans of students who have experienced fraud and abuse in the higher education sector. And so there's an important set of activities about protecting students from, uh, from, from that deception. There's also a lot of work that remains ahead of us in terms of students and families knowing what they're getting themselves into. So uh, it's simple, unfortunately the case right now that um, if you um, look at uh, financial aid award letters as uh, partners of TICAS did at You Aspire and New America. Unfortunately, they just aren't very clear. They aren't Yikes. the same. And sometimes it's not even clear to students whether they're signing up for grants or loans. Yikes. And so, uh, you know, there's just work to, that needs to be done across a wide array of protecting students, getting more equitable resources, um, addressing um, longstanding historic inequities in terms of who gets to go to higher education by race, by income, by geography, uh, where colleges are located, as well as uh, affordability, which we'll come back to, I know. Yeah. And, and before I bring you in, Mary, because I'm going to, I will I promise I'm gonna let you take over the whole thing. I want to, um, so as somebody that worked for the for-profit sector for 15 years, I worked in a career college. And I remember going through all the regs, and there's this regulation that, that scared the pants off of for-profits called misrepresentation. And it really applies to all colleges and universities. And it says, you can't misrepresent what you do. And, and an omission of information is all also considered misrepresentation. So the reason I bring that up is because as we talk about access, and this applies to all colleges, if we're talking about first-gen students, we're talking about students from a lower economic background, maybe in their first in their family to go to college, it's not just being first, <clears throat> and it's not just shepherding them through. It's about the first to understand college and university. And there are so many nuances and so many numbers and so many things that can become overwhelming. And we have a responsibility to explain, and we don't always do it in a way that everybody can understand. I always bring up bursar, right? Bursar is one of the least understood terms in higher education. It's the ultimate inside baseball term. If you walk around, it's not like you have a bursar in other industries. You only have it in higher ed, and people don't really get it, right? So how do we explain higher education in a way that people understand? How do we make financial aid word letters clear? How do we make it clear to students so that they don't get into a major that isn't going to get them a job or take a class that doesn't really count towards their degree, right? Because that happens, misadvising happens all the time. You know, uh, you've inspired me to go and look up the origins of Bursar after this. I, uh, I have to admit, I've come across it and kind of wondered, but never actually looked it up. 
Let me know what you find. But I mean, it's confusing, right? In, in, if students are going to access higher ed, how can they, what can we do as universities to help them better understand it? Absolutely. What do you think? Tell me. Well, what I think that we, um, you know, I'll, I'll say this. I think that there are instances and that the award letters is a good one where um, it's important to have policies, to have a federal policy environment, to have state policies that ensure that we are getting consistent and clear information out. And it's worth noting as well that um, there are uh, ways in which the federal government through things like the college scorecard can help create transparency. And so I think that uh, what I'd say is both that there's a obligation, uh, a set of work that many of your listeners, those on college campuses may be doing, and there's ways that the, the policy environment too can help underscore um, uh, clarity for students as they're navigating this ultimately confusing and all too often expensive process. Um, it's, uh, for example, the case that we, is making the job a lot harder um, on explaining what's happening if two different colleges have two totally different award letters, right? So Nailed I it. think that there's an, a sense in which there's an obligation for the federal government to put out information about outcomes there's an obligation to try to have clear standardized information in a way that's communicable to students. And then there's, of course, a bunch of work that happens at the state level, at the college level, at the individual level to educate students and families. All right, Mary, you're in. Yeah, and I'll throw another word out that's really inside baseball, and that's provost, which has military uh, origins, um, and try explaining tuition discounting to families oh, I was just going to see that uh, too. There, there's another one but but what I really like about the work you're doing Samir is that it's not just about access it's about success and success is about completion in a meaningful degree which by the way it's not just the for-profits that sometimes you know create those degrees uh we all remember the long story about, about um, another California school that's not a nonprofit but is a private uh that that got into some trouble for this um and and then there's the confusion over third party uh, rules and the OPMs. This is the uh, providers that help campuses implement online education, for example. Um, so there's a lot of pieces to this. Uh, but I'm really curious, Samir, if you could talk a little bit about why California and Michigan. The two states I know well, having, you know, we're, I, I'm from California and I, I'm here in California now, but I spent the first half of my career in Michigan. Um, really interesting places, really different economies, um, really different investments in um, public higher education, actually. Um, and, and thinking about what might be missing, uh, you know, where else would you want to go to fill out the picture? Yeah, um, thank you. Thank you, Mary, for those kind words. And thank you for that question. Um, ultimately, from a, a, a TICA standpoint, what we try to do is work in places where we can help improve college affordability, help improve the state policy conversation. The California work is uh, 16 years old, 15 years old. Um, and we have been working with a broad coalition of partners to improve college affordability and to protect students in that state. Um, I agree with you, every state is, is unique, every state is different. Um, we've, we've been um, glad to be able to take some of that work to Michigan uh, in the last uh, four years or so. 
And uh, Bill, the student and uh, community coalition that's thinking about issues of access, affordability, completion, and equity. And ultimately, I think that that outside perspective, that sustained focus on the problems that students are facing is something that helps in the policy conversation over time. We, we find that um, there's kind of a, an understandable and regular shift uh, from uh, in legislators and staffs, um, in top level policymakers. And our job as, as an advocate, our job as um, a research and policy shop is to help educate those policymakers about how they can help students. Um, in many cases, we have um, new people coming into those roles who may not know, for example, the details of the state financial aid programs and how they land in colleges and for students. Um, so. To your question, we um, have been glad to work in those two states, very different contexts, um, with each with their own idiosyncrasies, and that's true of every state. And uh, as time goes on, we'll be certainly, of course, trying to understand where else we can make a difference. Yeah, that's great. And, um, you know, thinking about that, I mean, I'm thinking about the um, financial aid letters and, and all of that. And, and clearly that's an area that is potentially bipartisan, you know, where uh, and other things aren't right. And there, there's a lot of pressure and I really do want to, to um, get your views on how some of the DEI language today is impacting some of the work because your work is grounded in equity and is grounded in closing gaps. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if it's difficult to talk about DEI, uh, at least um, explicitly, um, how does that impact potentially the work that you do? Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I, I'll certainly start by saying that um, it's worth acknowledging the context that we're working in, which is unfortunately one in which we have persistent uh, and even widening gaps by family income, by wealth, by race, in terms of who gets through college and to remunerative career. Um, and uh, it, we simply have, you know, a multi-decade set of trends that we're working with. Um, we have, uh, there's another policy um, advocacy group, the Education Trust, that put out a report called Segregation Forever, looking at public universities, state flagship public universities, and our progress or lack thereof in racial inclusion. And it was, you know, as you could tell from, guess from the title, and I encourage your listeners to read it. Um, it was about our lack thereof, our failure to make progress, unfortunately, um, on that front. And so I think that broad contest is worth bearing in mind as we think about not only um, the, uh, the, the, the narrowing, the backlash conversations that we're seeing about DEI, but also what we might hear from the Supreme Court next month around affirmative action. Don't settle for average marketing strategies. Join us at the Element 451 Engage Summit, June 27 and 28, and discover how to harness the power of AI technology in higher ed marketing, connect with industry leaders, explore cutting-edge technologies, and future-proof your marketing strategy. Use promo code EDUP50 for $50 off. Register now at engage.element451.com. Their premier ed tech event is right around the corner. Epic. Anthology Together is the destination for visionaries, educators, and learners ready to unleash the power of education technology. Ed Up 
will be on site for the thought-provoking keynotes, peer-driven discussions, and unparalleled networking opportunities. We guarantee you will leave inspired and connected. You don't want to miss it. Book your tickets to Nashville for AT23, July 17th to July 20th. Register today at anthologytogether.com. Yeah, it's um, and we are dealing with systemic and longstanding issues. And so um, while we have widened the access in many ways, people can argue that uh, we still have these persistent gaps. I want to, if I can, Joe, if you don't mind, I, I have, there's two populations I'd love to hone in on um, and, and really uh, see what Samir thinks about them. Um, the first is uh, the, um, you know, with this move toward skills-based hiring, uh, this is, you know, what we're hearing from some employers that with the talent gaps that we have, um, we can take uh, graduates of high school and we can, uh, provide them an opportunity to develop skills, maybe earn a credential, and then employ them. And in a low wage, I'm sorry, a low uh, unemployment, high wage environment, uh, that's attractive to a lot of students uh, or potential students, particularly first gen, where they can they can earn money. Um, but, but the skills-based hiring, and I've been pressing on this, this is why I really want to hear your thoughts on it, that's great, but what happens three years out and five years out? Do they hit what we call the paper ceiling, where they're not able to move up because they don't have that associate's degree or that four years bachelor's degree in in a in a field that allows them to do so? And um, you know, what's the responsibility of higher ed institutions uh, to partner with business to address uh, what potentially could be the unintended consequence of exacerbating disparities rather than than closing them? Well, I'll, I'll start by saying that I, I think that it's exciting to see places, opportunities. We've had for many decades um, instances where someone can get employer paid training and then get into a good job. And I think apprenticeships is our classic example of that. Although um, I, I think you're pointing to a few others. Um, and, you know, no one is better pleased than me when that's the case. Um, I think that it's worth noting two things alongside that. And the first is that um, the trend that you're talking about, this paper ceiling, it's exactly what we've seen in terms of labor market returns, that oftentimes degrees um, have more enduring value than shorter training programs. And that's one of the reasons that on average, and of course, we always end up talking in averages in, the, in these things, but on average, uh, a college degree remains a strong investment and one that has enduring payoffs for, for years and years and years and decades and decades and decades. And so I think it's worth acknowledging that, first of all. The second thing that um, I think is worth uh, noting in this conversation is that um, there can simultaneously be exciting developments in the field and developments that aren't necessarily characterized in the whole, whole field, right? So if a student's thinking about what, um, what, what do they need to do to have um, a stable job with a decent wage that, and a, a good career trajectory, they're thinking about the long-term, they're thinking about a multi-year investment in many cases, or at least should be based on the data that we see. And I think the question for us becomes, how do we connect a promising set of developments around uh, training provided by employers to that? Um, Overall, I think it's also worth noting that we've had this sea change on the higher ed arena. I'll bring the affordability back into it maybe sooner than, than you, uh, you ah. wanted, Joe. I'm sorry for that. 
No, but, no, I, I, I just wanted to save it really for the end because it's so important, right? I mean, so, so let's let's go down that road. All right. Well, I'll go down the road a little bit, and maybe we can uh, table part of it too for the end. Um, but right now, uh, college costs are are high enough that even after federal, state, and college grant aid, um, student most students can't afford to go without taking on debt. And uh, you know, to I cover the average cost of attending a four-year public. Uh, a, a student from a family making $30,000 or less would need to spend 93% or nearly all of their family income to be able to go uh, to cover the average cost of a two-year public. It's about two-thirds. And so those are just daunting numbers um, and, and a daunting amount of debt. We're asking students to take a risky bet. So I bring that up to say that if employers are willing are, and able to take that investment on instead of students, I think there's, on the one hand, I think that can be an important tool for access. But on the other hand, we also wanna make sure that it doesn't become uh, something to your point, Mary, that exacerbates uh, inequities. I think in the same ways that one might wonder, although this is not my area of expertise, about employer provided health insurance. It's great for the people who get it, but it can right. be worrisome and, and problematic in some ways to tie that to a job. Well, and that takes me to the other population because those who perhaps um, you know follow the the skills based hiring um, path may one day be in the um, some college and no degree. You know, the the very large many millions of people, and you know this world well from some of your earlier work, um, Samir. But um, you know, we at, in higher ed we fight over about three million. Um, you know, eighteen uh, traditional uh, you know new first year students. But there's close to 80 million, uh, you know, some college and no degree out there. And so, you know, what is and many of them have dropped out without um, while taking on debt. So they actually are in the worst case scenario where they have some college but no degree to give them the benefit financially that that would provide. But they've taken on debt and they have to pay it back. So how do we address that population? What is what does traditional higher ed need to do um, to address it? And this is where, as well, some of the for-profits have filled the gaps. Well, uh, I think that that's a really important population for us to be thinking about. It's one that has led to the economic and financial precarity that we saw the administration try to address with its debt cancellation, because there's nothing that in enhances precarity more, of course, than having some debt, um, but not having the credential or degree that would help you pay it off. And unfortunately, uh, that's one of the reasons that we see the highest rates of student loan default from the students who have borrowed the least um, many times or disproportionately, those might be people who are in this category. They, they went to college for a semester or a year, they took out some debt and they didn't leave with anything. Um, and it's one of the ways that debt finance higher education most enhances, uh, I think, some of the underlying precarities uh, uh, and uh, challenges that we have around um, equity in the economy. So. I um coming back to your point, I think that it's important for colleges to think about how they can serve this population, but it's also important for us to think about the the challenges that those students are are likely to to face. Um, they they have debts um, from federal student loans in many cases. They may have institutional debts. So we've seen a lot of conversation in recent years about the practice of transfer withholding uh, for students who may have 
uh, owed a couple hundred dollars to their college and uh, haven't paid that back. Um, we see challenges around uh, affordability. Um, uh, and for those students, they may be older, they may have families, um, they may need to navigate uh, a work schedule, a childcare schedule, and going to college. And in many ways, we have not set up the right policies, the right systems. Um, and I know that there are some colleges that are thoughtful about how to serve these populations, but there are some that, that are less so. Um, one of the things that TICAS has thought about uh, in, uh, in recent months is how can we better uh, help SNAP recipients get access to college? And how can we help people on SNAP um, benefit from, the, from college degrees, as well as helping current college students who are, um, who are experiencing hunger get access to food benefits that they are entitled to? So I think that you know, those are the kinds of considerations that, that come into play. I, I believe on a previous recent EDUP podcast, um, you were talking about student parents. So, you know, I think that there are just uh, with as we think about the some college no degree population and helping them get to a degree, um, there's a host of considerations that come in on the college side, on the policy side, um, that are all important contributors to ultimately helping them. Yeah, and I'm going to toss it back to Joe in a minute, but I appreciate that. And, and as I think about, um, you know, my previous institution, San Jose State and the work of the Cal State, you know it well, uh, they've really, I think, uh, tried to tackle the um, food insecurity, the housing insecurity, the basic needs issues, so that current students don't become those some college and no degrees. And um, it's a really daunting challenge because of high cost of living and other pressures. Um, and then you add the pressures of the undocumented students as well. So uh, this is a complicated issue, but um, it, they are trying to work on it from a systemic level um, as well as an individual campus level. And I just wanted to shout out to them for some really amazing work um, that's happening uh, there. And- um, That's I'll, a fact, that's a yeah. fact. <laughs> and I'll throw it back to you, Joe. One question I've always had, and I don't want to say I've always had it, but it, it's coming up more and more now as we have the affordability conversation, Samira, and that is, what is affordable? Is it zero? I mean, is it a free education? Is it 5,000? Is it 10,000? Is it, is it a sliding scale based on earnings and wealth and so on? How do we because, you know, if, it's like a, one of these where I think higher ed are always good at blanket statements. Right, we say student success, and, and this has nothing to do with your organization, but student success can mean a hundred different things. And student success is this blanket term, and it could be mental health, it could be you know, text messaging and nudging, and there's just so many facets and layers. Affordability also is something that has lots of layers depending on how you define it. Can you talk, how do you, it, it, Tikas, think about affordability and what the goals are? Yeah, so um, it's a great question. And I'll try to give you a simple answer for once. <laughs> I hope um, so uh, ultimately, I think that it intuitively, uh, from our standpoint and understanding the data, we need to reach a point where we, we can meet the total cost of attendance through a combination of a reasonable work expectation and all of the different kinds of grant aid for students with the greatest economic need so that they don't need to borrow. Um, uh, and I think that it's that total cost of attendance, not just tuition and fees that we need to be thinking about. And I acknowledge 
that there's a grant part of that equation, there's a reasonable work expectation part of that equation. But if we don't uh, get to that point, I think we can say that college is not truly affordable for those families and students. The, the, I think some of the complications there, first of all, I, I, I thank you for, um, for showing or at least saying the difference between direct cost and cost of attendance. It's one of the most confusing things. I think people in higher ed will go, well, that's, that's the cost. That's the cost of attendance. They actually will say cost of attendance, but they really mean direct cost. They mean tuition and fees. But the government does some kind of calculation or you, you provide your, um, your calculation internally of how much it actually costs. And that can consider things like living expenses and food and gas and ancillary items and, and it takes this much for you to actually go to school on a daily basis, right? There's a big difference. Um, the variability in costs is huge, right? So there's gonna always be institutions that go, well, you know, we can't cover it. Um, we, we feel we are worth more. Um, by the way, maybe we'll jack up the list price, but discount it later to Mary's point. Tuition discounting is one of those areas that is is a big mystery. It's the most mysterious part of higher ed, right? Um, how do you, I mean, is it, is it, it's almost like you got to replace the players, uh, the people making the decisions because we're used to this. We, we all discount tuition. We all do it. How do you bring, I don't know, we even know what my question is other than maybe <laughs> me going on a ramp, but how do we, how do you get it to where a student can understand where we don't understand it? Well, that's the that's the thing about looking at the cost of attendance. I think, right? I mean, I um, I'll say on the tuition discounting, and uh, we'll see if this ends up being an interesting conversation that we we go down. But you know, um, I'll just say that when I go to TJ Maxx, I don't look at what's the price that they've crossed out. I look at what it well, what it'll take me at the register to actually you know buy whatever we we have there. And I think that the thing that's compelling about looking at the cost of attendance is that it's after we factored that in, right? We factored in all the aid. What is it really going to take for you to be able to attend the total cost of attendance? And then um, I agree with you um, that it's not meeting the total cost of attendance at every single college or university uh, across the country. But I think it's making sure that there's um, a public two or four year option at which we can meet the total cost of attendance for a student with great economic need. So there's choice then, right? So then there's, so do I wanna to go to this college or university and with uh, this calculation of grants and, and whatever, I, I'm not gonna have very much or any out-of-pocket expense, or if I choose to, I can go to XYZ university and perhaps take on loans so that you provide yeah. some kind of choice. I think that we're always going to have a system that includes um, public and private institutions with varying missions. I think that's good. Um, I think that um, we should be able, uh, or I would say that our baseline should be we have uh, a set of options where we meet the total cost of attendance through this combination of grants, uh, institutional, state, federal, as well as um, a, a federal affordability guarantee. Um, and we should have a public two and four year option that meets that definition for the students with the greatest need. And then there'll be other options where, especially if we're thinking about a wealthier private institution, it may not necessarily be the case that we can uh, fill the gap fully. And not every institution will be able to fill the gap fully, particularly on the private side. But 
ultimately, I think that's the definition of affordability that, that we would work from. Fantastic. Mary. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's a complicated um, issue, but, but uh, the, the focus on what really is affordable, I think is critical. But I, I wanted to ask you to, to sort of step back a little bit. Now these students have uh, graduated and we look at the ROI, the return on investment for a degree. And um, the way it's sometimes calculated is there's a direct line, you know, one year out, three years out, maybe five years out. And if you're in speech language hearing, you know, you're going to get a job, you'll pass your exam, you'll get a job in speech as a speech language pathologist. If you're an accounting major, you'll get a job as a accountant, right? But what if you're a history major? What if you're an English major, right? Mary, I, had, a, I had my BS in speech communications, which is a BS in BSing. So can we use that as an example? Yeah, it's a great example, uh -huh. but think about it. I love, I love, um, you know, our history. You know, a lot of people say, remember President Obama, what are you going to do with an art history major? He's taken a lot of flack for that, by the way. But think about it for a moment. We live in a digital world with generative AI, where if you talk to CEOs, what they want are people who can communicate, work in a multicultural environment, think about your anthropologists, right? Your sociologists, your, your language majors. How do we rethink the, um, the way we communicate this so that a history major or an English major who, who can connect a lot of dots um, and, and actually do well if you go, if you go five to 10 years out um, are actually positioned well for uh, a, a changing uh, environment where they actually have the strengths, but we don't talk about them that way. Yeah, well, that's a, a great question, Mary, and I'll note two things on it. The first is, I think that it is important for us to think about um, places where students are persistently being saddled with unaffordable debts and meager earnings, places where earnings just stay low for graduates coming out of uh, a college program. And so I think it's appropriate to set a floor around those things. And we actually just this week saw the department uh, moving to do that with uh, a restored gainful employment regulation. Um, but at the same time, your point is well taken that um, one of the things that uh, people value uh, as individuals and we value as society is the broader critical thinking creativity that students can get uh, in, in higher education, in college. And, uh, you know, when we look at the data uh, on ROI, it actually, by the way, I, I think it ends up being the case that it's not simply comporting with people's intuition that, you know, if you, if you get a very narrow technical degree, that that ends up being better and liberal arts doesn't do as well. It actually ends up being the case that it's, it's much, um, more open and that those creativity and critical thinking skills do get rewarded in the labor market. But um, to your point, I, I think it speaks to the broader need for us to be um, not thinking overly narrowly and in a, in a uh, way that's not even consistent with the data about where we will get ROI. I think it's kind of people's intuition about ROI more than the reality of it, right? Yeah, and it usually what what happens is you you have um, you know many first generation students in particular who are dissuaded um, either by you know 
their communities or by their peers or by our own uh, sort of marketing and um, and and the signals that we're, we're sending them that um, they shouldn't pursue the things that they're actually really uh, passionate about that align with their talents and their interests um, because we really haven't uh, provided the pathways for them. And so if we think about somebody pursuing that art, that art degree, right? everything is visual, right? Anytime you're on online, you're in a visual world. So knowing how to read the visual and create the visual is actually, can, can create really good jobs. Um, but then we have to educate them as well and give them exposure to some of the technical fields. And, and so it's not an either or, it becomes a both and. Um, I'm wondering though, as we think about financial aid, um, uh, you know, options and we move from the access piece to what they experience while they're in the institutions. We also know that it's not always where you go, it's the kind of experience you have when you're there. What needs to change in the financial aid world to ensure that some of our most needy students can actually engage in undergraduate research, in internships, in international experiences if they're able to, uh, given their immigration status and the like? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly um, uh, there's there's a lot to unpack there. I'll say that part of it is a financial aid issue, but there's uh, a number of other programs and um, uh, funding streams and things that need to come into the mix. So I'll say, you know, as a starting point, uh, we absolutely need to expand, in, in my view, uh, Pell Grants uh, to undocumented students. We need to uh, make sure that state colleges are affordable for um, a wide, for all of the students who are in the state. Um, and I think that we also, to your point, need to figure out how these other enriching experiences um, can be offered to students uh, in an array of higher ed settings, whether they're in a community college or in a four-year uh, university. I think as we hear you talk about the university experience, we can hear the uh, both educator and college president in you, the university Excellent. president in you. So, um, but I agree that we need to have those rich experiences for, for all students who are in higher education or as many as we can. Well, yeah. I love that there are people like you who are holding our feet to the fire and saying, yes, you're doing some good things, but there's more we can do. And um, and what I really like about what you do at TKC is you come up with actual uh, roadmaps and, and policy suggestions so that it's not just theoretical, uh, which some research can be, but you're really thinking through how you apply it. So I just want to say kudos to you and your entire team for that. Thank you. What do we, um, when we talk, th this is a really interesting conversation and it can go really deep. Um, and as we talk about what things cost and how much we should pay and what's the ROI, the interesting part about Gainful and, and what has kind of always been part of the argument is that like law education doesn't pass gainful because um, the I remember the original gainful rule came out and all the law schools were going absolutely bonkers because well you take on $150,000 worth of debt and you get out and make 40 grand as a staff, a staff lawyer. Um, and then there are other programs that probably don't meet gainful. How do you balance that with the student input, right? So, and the, and this is like a, you know, if I'm a, I'm a student and I'm gonna take this program that um, may lead to earnings, may, maybe it's a, a, a program that passes gainful, but I just stink at interviewing. I'm never gonna end up with a job because I just can't get an interview. Now I've got all this debt 
and, I, and I'm not getting the job and it's affecting the calculation for my institution. And I, and I say this from um, now moving from my nonprofit uh, time back into for-profit, that was always something we had to manage. Like, well, wait a minute, I, I can't control the student that goes out on this interview and blows it. How do you balance the rule and the regulation of um, a gainful employment towards a career that's gonna fill your gap in terms of discretionary income and so on with the student responsibility? Because there always is skin in the game for the student, right? Yeah, and I think that the contextual point I'd add in, the two contextual points I'd add in are first of all, that it's um, very much about setting a floor in a world where we do see significant uh, fraud uh, and abuse of students, uh, misrepresentations to students, as you said earlier. So we've seen a lot of that. And I think that the gainful employment regulation is about setting that floor so that we're trying to weed out some of the programs that lead to the worst, worst outcomes that are definitely leaving students uh, worse off. And I think that there, it kind of comes back to, to knit together several themes. It comes down to program improvement. It comes back to helping to educate students about what they can realistically expect. Um, so I think there's just a, a lot of different threads that we've touched on here that are part of the puzzle when it comes to gainful employment. Yeah, very good. Well, let's, uh, we, we like to end these episodes with the same two questions of every guest, uh, Samir. Number one, what did we not say about Tikus that you want to say? Open mic, that's not really a question, is it? I gotta change my whole thing at the end. Open mic for you for, for a minute or two, say anything you want, talk about something coming up, something you're working on, your staff, whatever. And then to close us out with what you see for the future of higher education. Well, um, for us, uh, I, I, we talked a little bit about this, but on the TICA side, we're working hard on the path to debt-free college, um, which we see as a set of policies that knit together what we need to do at the state level and what we need to do at the federal level to achieve that goal of bringing the total cost of attendance uh, within reach uh, for students from the most economically disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, and we do that, I think that that's a, an important thread of work that we continue to build out on the TICA side. It's a complement to the work that we talked about around transparency in the higher education um, uh, marketplace, as well as the work that we do to protect students from fraud, waste, and abuse. Um, so that's the, the thread that I want to highlight. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that I think we've seen, unfortunately, the development of the deepening of our student debt crisis, of our student uh, and college affordability crisis. And I think that we are at a, a moment where uh, we have both an imperative to, as well as a lot of push to try to figure this out. And so I'm hopeful that we're going to be able to do so uh, as a community in the uh, months and years ahead. Wow. What do you think about this conversation, Mary? Yeah, no, I think it's exactly right, and it's timely, and it's important. Um, there's a lot of moving parts right now, particularly at the federal level. Uh, but but I like also the um, the focus on states because it really is a combination of both the federal level and the states. Where the feds can do it, I think that's important. And um, so your work there, I think, uh, is going to make a difference in the lives of, of a lot of, of students. So um, really appreciate that. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, this incredible episode of the Edup Experience. Um, it was fun. It was engaging. And we talked about some of the most critical issues of higher ed. Um, 
I'm going <laughs> to, I, you guys probably hadn't seen it. And I, and I laugh because I laugh at myself, but for the first time over three years, for the f three years we've been putting out these episodes, for the first time this week, I had two colleagues in higher ed tell me they didn't like the unstructured format of these conversations and or the sound effects were unprofessional for higher ed. And I said, you know what? I disagree with that. But I, I, I want, we, we always ask the question, feedback is welcome. We want to have fun while we, we have these conversations. This is very serious work that we're doing. And look at the angles that we were able to put together here, co uh, former college president, uh, advocacy CEO. I mean, this is really incredible content. We thank you both uh, for having it. And I'm going to continue to press these sound effect buttons. Uh, I will tell you that right now. Excellent. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest co-host, she's Dr. Mary Papazian. You need to follow her if you haven't um i can guarantee this will not be the only time you hear from her on an ed up microphone mary thanks for joining me today my pleasure thanks for having me joe and our guest today your guest today he is the one and only president and ceo of ticus that's the college the college it's the institute for college access and success he is samir Gadkari, and he is a man on a mission samir thank you for your time today and, and for bringing the passion for students thank you for having me with that, ladies and gentlemen, you've just ed upped. Experience Element 451's Engage Summit Conference this June and get ready to unleash the power of AI in higher ed marketing. Deep dive into how this emerging tech will revolutionize the education landscape from personalized student engagement to turbocharging your marketing efforts with AI. These sessions are guaranteed to help you smash your enrollment goals, connect with like-minded professionals, explore cutting-edge ed tech products and services, and leave with the knowledge to supercharge your institution's growth. Don't wait. Register now at engage.element451.com and seize your chance to lead the pack in the AI-driven education revolution. Use promo code EDUP50 for $50 off your registration. Now, what can you expect at AT23? That's Anthology Together 2023. Well, expect to look into the future, expand your network, and explore solutions with experts. You're going to hear from industry thought leaders. You're going to connect with countless opportunities and people representing different institutions across the globe. You might even get to test out some new tech and help drive future anthology technology. That's right, Anthology Together. Registration is open at anthologytogether.com.